Hey guys, it's me, Jesse. I think you're really going to like this show, but I wanted to chime in here and remind you that right now is the Max Fund Drive. Once a year, we ask for your money to pay for this show. I know that if you listen to a podcast, it's because you chose to do so. There are no casual podcast listeners, only people who affirmatively subscribed to the show and continue to listen every week. If you value what we're doing, visit MaximumFun.org slash donate and give right now. I'll be back to bother you a little bit more later, but here's the show. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's the Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Walter Mosley, is the author of more than 30 books in his uh, 20-some-odd-year career. Uh, He's probably best known for the Easy Rollins mystery, starting with his first published book, Devil in a Blue Dress, at the end of the 1980s, and continuing to his newest book with a new protagonist, Known to Evil. Um, He's written in genres uh, including detective fiction and crime fiction, but also uh, science fiction and uh, nonfiction and literary fiction. He's written a play, and uh, he even wrote a, a, a book of what we will call adult fiction uh, <laughs> for the purposes of public radio. Walter, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Well, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Um, we're here in Los Angeles where we record the show, and um, I, I guess I didn't know that you are uh, originally from Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. Born and raised. My, my, dad, um, my dad spent his uh, teenage years in Glendale. He's uh, maybe five years older than you are. And um, when he comes down here, his eyes are always like you know saucers because he can't believe the way that the place has transformed mm-hmm. in that yeah. 40 years. In a way that, like, I'm from San Francisco, and I think maybe, you know, different people will be living in San Francisco 30 years from now, but it'll look largely the same. Yeah. Well, Los Angeles has grown in population 100,000 people a year, every year since 1945. And that's a lot of hundreds of thousands of people. That's a lot of hundreds of thousands of people. It's millions and millions of people. It's big. What was the what was the Los Angeles that you uh, grew up in? You 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 sort of had you sort of had a, a pre adolescence in um, uh, in South LA and then moved a- around adolescence. Am I rem- remembering that right? Uh, well, I I lived in Los Angeles until I was uh, eighteen or nineteen and then left. So you know I was born and uh, raised till the age of twelve in Watts, and then moved over to Westish Los Angeles, Fairfax and Pico. And, uh, you know, and here I, here, there I was, you know, I lived here till 1973, I think. And then I was gone. What, what kind of, what kind of place was, uh, Watts when you were a kid? How do you remember it? You know, it's funny when you talk to me about your father, because, you know, most of Los Angeles hasn't changed at all. And there's a lot more people, but when you go to all the old places, you know, all the bungalows that were, you know, th- that, that, uh, existed, uh, when I was a little kid, they're still there. The bungalows are still there. The buildings are still there. The streets are pretty much the same. That's why the traffic is so bad. Um, it is the Los Angeles I remember to a great degree, and uh, it's funny. You know, I, I know one, the the big difference for me is the black population has mostly moved out to outlying areas, uh, but I recognize Los Angeles. 
Um, when you were 18 um, and you moved out of Los Angeles, was it because you, uh, you know, you were the kind of 18-year-old that wanted to get out of the place that you grew up? Yeah, I wanted to get as far away from it as possible, so I moved to Vermont. <laughs> That's pretty far. In every way possible, it was different. It was very cold. It was very north. It was very, you know, very white. I, I read somewhere. I read somewhere a claim that you had had a uh, Bay Area and Santa Cruz period. Well, you know, I would. You know, I'm from Los Angeles, so I go up to Santa Cruz all the time. I go up to uh, San Francisco and Oakland and uh, Berkeley all the time. I mean, I'm, I feel very connected. At the end of this uh, book tour that I'm on, I'm going to spend five days in San Francisco. I um I, I went to college in Santa Cruz. Uh huh. UC Santa Cruz. Huh? At UC Santa Cruz, and I'm 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 counting up. I'm I'm counting up doing the math in my head. I would imagine that the time that you spent in Santa Cruz was uh, really at just um, you know hippie cultural revolution central time. Yeah. How did you How did you identify yourself uh, culturally in that period when? All these all these categories were kind of exploding outward, you know, in this in this big sort of cultural shift. You know, it's so interesting in America. In America, you are defined culturally. You don't really define yourself culturally. You know, I I was a guy. You know, I was living my life and uh, happy to be living my life. I was you know, certainly black, certainly Jewish, certainly you know a hippie, certainly young. You know, I mean, there was all these things that I was, but. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't under. I don't feel that they were like overriding definitions, except externally. You know, internally, I was Walter. Did you have an idea of something that you wanted to do with your life uh, besides? I still uh, don't that sort of exploration. I still don't. I mean, the idea of doing something with your life. I, one of the things I love about being from California is, is you can think about things like that, but you don't have to. And uh, you know, I mean, you know, you live your life. You know, that's what you do you live your life uh and that's what's uh wonderful it's, it's what's wonderful um the idea of actually doing something you know uh it's always going to be as negative as it is positive and so you're always going to be answerable for all the best things you've done and now at the same time you have since the you know mid to late 1980s uh written so many books that i cannot imagine that you're lifestyle is anything but profoundly committed to writing books. Um, so what, what was the difference between you in, you know, 1971 hitchhiking across the country um, and getting high all the time, and you in uh, 1986 decided to write every day I, I didn't get high anymore. <laughs> but... Um... I don't think there's a lot of difference, honestly. Re really, honestly, I, I just don't think there's a lot of difference. I, I've always, you know, uh, obsessively been working at something. I, I drew, and I still draw for a long time. I get up every day, and I draw for three hours. And then when I start writing, I stop drawing, and I start writing for three hours. You know, it's something, you know, that you like doing. I mean, hippies, hippies weren't lazy. They did things, you know. They just, you know, the idea. But those things didn't necessarily connect to... um um. to an ambition or a goal you know i like writing very much i like writing novels and i think that my novels get better and i feel you know i just just love it you know but it's like my book you know this year you write your novel you know it's just simply this year you write your novel you know uh you know it it it, it is, isn't 
you know, it's nothing about ambition or career or money or uh, even sales or publication. It's just like, well, you do what you like to write a novel. I love writing. I think it's a great thing to do, and I do it. When you started writing, was it really not tied to ambition? I'm not just talking about like absolutely not career no. ambition, but it's it's hard to it's hard to get through. Well, even I had a the novel. ambition to write a finished story. I remember that very clearly. I wanted to write a story that had a first line and a last line, and when you've read the first line all the way to the last line, it made sense. That's what I wanted to be able to do, and you know, ultimately, I did it. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by the Calgary Folk Festival. Four days of musical concerts and collaborations in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. 68 artists perform in an urban park July 22nd through 25th, including the Avett Brothers, St. Vincent, Michael Franti, and Roberta Flack. More information online at calgaryfolkfest.com. By Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hey gang, it's me, Jesse. I hope you're enjoying the show. Uh, I, I tried to get some really awesome stuff for our Max Fun Drive. I don't know if you know this, but this is the 10th year of The Sound of Young America. We started this show in 2000 in a college radio station in Santa Cruz. Jordan and Gene and I literally had to go to the station before the shuttle buses on the UCSC campus started running. So we had to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning, which is no mean feat for uh, college guys, and walk across the campus, often in the dark, in the damp, uh, under the trees, literally through the woods, to get to the radio station to make the show. Ten years later, I am no less committed to making an amazing program for you. But I need to ask you to be committed to us. Making the Sound of Young America is expensive. I do a huge amount of work, and, you know, I have to pay my rent and pay for the studio, which, granted, is a second bedroom in my apartment. We pay Nick, the editor, to edit this show. In fact, he's probably editing what I'm doing right now. We pay for studios all over the world. We pay for travel to places like uh, Sundance and South by Southwest, where we can gather awesome people. We run an incredibly efficient operation here. There's no waste. Uh, a lot of other shows that are like ours have four or five producers. We've got me hosting, producing, etc., etc., etc. Plus, Nick working two days a week out of his apartment in Chicago and a part-time intern. Every penny of what you give us makes an impact. So if you value what we do, visit MaximumFun.org slash donate and give. You can give us $10 a month, $20 a month. It's a small drop in the bucket of your monthly income, but it makes a huge difference to us here. MaximumFun.org slash donate. Let's return to the show. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Walter Mosley, is one of the nation's most acclaimed mystery novelists. His newest book is Known to Evil. How did you, um, how did you fall into uh, the specific sort of uh, genre world of writing detective fiction? I had written a story about Easy Rollins, uh, Gone Fish, and nobody wanted to publish it because it was about two young black men in the Deep South who weren't particularly educated. Uh, there were black women in the story, but those black women uh, didn't, um, they weren't um, central characters. And, they, and the, the 
kind of reigning uh, theory at that time was uh, white people don't read about black people. Black women don't like black men and black men don't read. So who's going to publish your book? And so then I wrote about the same two characters, Mouse and Easy. I wrote a mystery and it got published. What did you like about um, uh, working in a world that has such uh, such established conventions? That has a sort of a, a a system where you're you're sort of working both with and against this kind of uh, setup that comes with what you're doing. Hmm. I never thought about it. You know, I'm, I'm, I was writing stories, and I'm writing novels, and I put them out there in the world. Uh, the other day, I sent a, a collection of stories to my uh, uh, editor, and and he said, well, you know, I don't really get it. So I said, okay, so now I'm going <laughs> to publish them somewhere else. You know, I mean, it, 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 it's not, you know, it, I don't, I'm not concerned with the structures, because I know that the structures, you know, the structures, you know, are trying to maintain something that was, and there are other things that are becoming uh, the work might not be good. That's true, and um, I might fail at something. That's true, but it doesn't really matter. You don't. You don't. You never succeed if you don't fail. You know, I, I was reading. Uh, I was reading the new book, Known to Evil, and it was reminding me of something about the Easy Rollins books, many many of which I read, which was that one of the biggest differences between. Um, uh, your detective fiction and much detective fiction. I know you've you've des- I've read you describing this new stuff as um, hard boiled, but it's a sort of on a on a relative scale. Um, is that a lot of detective fiction is about someone who has been completely like cut loose from the world and society and normal uh, normal strictures, and thus like has to establish his own uh, idea of what's important. That's usually like solving the case. Um, somebody who kind of like, you know, lives in a, in a sort of liminal place and, um, both, uh, Leonid McGill and Easy Rollins are both very deeply rooted in family in different ways, but the, (laughs) the books are about as much, uh, as much about their relationship with their families as they are about, you know, them out in the world Mm -hmm. solving the mystery. How do you think? How do you think that came to be so important in, in these books? Well, you know, the uh, uh, hard-boiled and noir fiction are both uh, blue-collar existentialist literature. You have existentialist heroes, people who are looking to do the right thing in the world and trying to figure out what the right thing is in a world where it's almost yeah, almost all the rules have turned topsy turvy. Um, my characters, uh, well, the old characters, uh, the way that they made them existentialist to give them no mother, no father, no sister, no brother, no friends, no girlfriend, no wife, no children, no dog. Um, all they have is a stiff drink. They change an apartment every month, right? So like if they got into trouble, like for instance, if a detective, if the policeman, uh, go to a detective and said, you got to turn this guy in. Uh, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. And they say, well, we'll put you in jail until you do. He says, well, I don't care. Do it. Of course he doesn't care because he has, he has no responsibilities. Uh, when you add the, the issue of you know, family and connections and, and community connections and then say that to him, then the decision becomes much more, uh, much greater pressure. Don't get me wrong. I think that you know, Hammett and Chandler and Ross McDonald, the, the, the early greats, did a wonderful job creating these characters. Uh, and, the, and, their, and their eyes and their vision of the world is really extraordinary. But at the same time, uh, 
to do that today, you go a little easy on your characters. Well, okay, fine. So you don't have to do anything. You don't owe anybody anything. So you can do whatever you want. So, so what difference does that make? You can say if you do this, but you still have you know children at home, a dog that hasn't been fed in 18 hours or, or walked, then that's another issue. You also have, um, with both uh, Lena and McGill, the uh, protagonist of your newest book, and um, Easy Rollins, family relationships that are um, that are much more complicated than the traditional, and, and not just you know romantic, complicated romantic relationships with their wives. Although you know a, a big part of this book is the. Um, is the protagonist sort of struggling to figure out what his relationship with his wife is. But um, also like these really complicated relationships with kids. Um, and, and it was the same way with, it was the same way with Easy Rollins. It's sort of like, uh, you know, one of the, one of the key characters of this one is, um, is a kid who isn't uh, the protagonist's um, natural child, mm-hmm. but who the protagonist freely admits is his favorite of his children. Right. Twill, uh, yeah. Why, why do you think you like to, you like to complicate that so much? To- well, you know, I, I think that, the, that, that the, uh, the normal family, the regular family, the accepted family doesn't exist. I think that we all have very complicated relationships uh, all through our lives, and that uh, my book is just talking about that. Uh, I don't think it's I, I you know I don't I think Leonard McGill's relationship to his family is not standard, but I don't, neither do I think it's unusual. Um, Easy Rollins uh, moved through times sort of in a similar way to like. Uh, you know the the way August Wilson's plays move through time. His mm-hmm. life kind of played out over the course of the books, as um, as set against you know these various historical periods. This um, uh, these most recent uh, two Leonid McGill books are contemporary. Yes, um, but they're also um, I think Middle Age is a really important part. Of yeah. Leonid McGill, yeah. There's this part where uh, where you a character says, "When you hit your fifties, life, start, life starts coming up on you fast." Gordo Tallman says on the occasion said to me on the occasion of my 49th birthday. Before that time, life is pretty much a straight climb. Wife looks up to you, and the young kids are small enough, and the older kids are smart enough not to weigh you down. But then, just when you start putting on pounds and losing your win, the kids are expecting you to fulfill your promises, and the wife all of a sudden sees every single one of your flaws. Your parents, if you still got any, are getting old and turning back into kids themselves. For the first time, you realize that the sky does have a limit. You come into a rise, but when you hit the top, there's another life up ahead of you. And there you are, just about spent. Was was getting to a point like that in your own life part of why you wanted to create a protagonist who was um, at a point like that in his life? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. I, Is that know, really the honest answer? Really? No, I, really I, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't. I don't. I like that um, part that you just read. Do you relate to that? I don't necessarily that? relate to it. No, I don't. I don't feel that. Uh, I, I I look with 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 uh, great expectation to that second phase of my life, and I know that uh, Leonid has a very negative view of it because of of the amount of work that he has to do, and he doesn't feel that he can. Um, you know, it is fiction, you know, I mean, I am, you know, I'm older than Leonid. He's 54, I'm 58. Uh, but, uh, still, 
Uh, no, I don't. I don't feel the same way, but I I revel in writing about it. No, what do you think you like about writing about it? I, well, it sounds true. It feels true to me. It feels right to me. It feels like what most Americans experience. They ex- they experience all you know. It's like especially that thing you know about like you know the the whole time your wife has loved you and all of a sudden she sees all your flaws. You know, it's it's really like things stop working at a certain time. You know, everything that you expected, everything that you thought was going to go on, stops. And you have no more control over it. And the one thing you have to do is kind of relinquish control and just do the best you can. That's a very, that's a very sort of existential crisis right well, there. Well, but there, this is an existential genre, I believe. Um, I, I live in, when I read that, the, the thing that, uh, the thing that struck me was fear for the day that my wife would recognize all of my flaws. <laughs> <laughs> or you could look forward to it. You know, that's the other thing, you know, the, one, one of the interesting things about life is that, you know, when things change, uh, there's a potential for them to get better. And, uh. That's the way I've I've always felt, that uh, no matter what goes wrong, no matter what you lose, no matter what hurts you, if it doesn't kill you, there's a possibility for your life to get better. And, uh, but you have to be able to, to see the opportunities. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Sandy Young America. It was great to have you ah, here. It's great to be here. Walter, Walter Mosley's great new novel is Known to Evil and Lean in McGill Mystery. Um, it's only the latest in a string of now 34, Five, thirty-four, thirty-four, thirty-four books uh, that span uh, all genres and uh, styles. Th- thanks again, Walter. Thank you. Hey, it's Jesse. One last time. I hope you enjoyed that show. I certainly enjoyed making it. You know, it's your support that allows us to make this program. We've been making The Sound of Young America for ten years. This is our tenth anniversary, and we couldn't do it without you. Three years ago, I was still working a part-time job to support my, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe Sound of Young America habit. I think that in that three years, not only has my work grown to a full-time job, or frankly more than a full-time job, but I think the show has grown along with it. If you ask me, the future of media is independent, and you have a chance to cast a vote in favor of independent media. Look, we give out our shows for free. Every single one of our programs, the whole seven-year, five, six-year archive of podcasted shows are absolutely for free on our website and in iTunes, and we don't begrudge anyone downloading them for free. But what we do ask is that when they do, if they like them, if you care about them, you support us. So visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. You can check out some of the cool thank you gifts that we've got, including some exclusive T-shirts and our awesome exclusive to this pledge drive Sound of Young America live in New York DVD with some great Jordan Jesse Go content on it too. There's lots of good reasons to give, but what's most important is that you get up off of your good intentions and visit maximumfund.org/donate right now. maximumfund.org/donate. And my thanks to those of you who've already given. Make sure to bother your friends who listen. Twitter tweet blog about this maximum fund drive may 13th to may 28th so we can get as many people to give and support this operation as is possible that's maximumfund.org slash donate thanks friends